Um, we do start a new series today, a new set of books in our Bibles. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now, what I want to focus on this morning is not Ezra, Nehemiah, or Esther. If you go back two plus years, we had an introduction message to the book of Romans to set the stage for what we would be learning. We didn't realize it would take us two years, but we had an introduction message. What I want to do this morning is take the time to establish context, to establish history, to establish what's going on with the people of God in the Old Testament at this time. I, this is kind of one of those uh, obligatory questions, but any Star Wars fans in here? <clears throat> okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a Star Wars fan myself and have, have been since 1976 when the first movie came out in 77. Yeah, 77, 77. So I have, since I was very young, been interested in the Star Wars saga. Of course, it started with episode 4, 4, 5, 6. Then they went back and made 1, 2, 3. Now they're making 7, 8, 9. That makes sense, right? Uh, anyway, something jumped out to me the other day. It was in an article. And it, it, I, you know, you pretty much think you know the story and you think what it's about. But somebody pointed out that all of these sagas, 4, 5, 6, 1, 2, 3, and now 7, 8, 9, are basically a coming-of-age story, people passing from adolescence or young, young child into adulthood. When you think about it, Luke in 4, 5, and 6, Anakin in 1, 2, and 3, and now we're dealing with Ray in 7, 8, 9. And I'm like, oh, never thought about that. Huh? No spoilers here. That's all I'm saying. Okay? So this common thread that runs through these stories... Uh, what's peculiar to me and interesting to me, I'm like, wow, I, you know, now I'm going to, because we'll rewatch the movies before eight comes out, and like we're like eight weeks away, by the way, and now there's, yeah, or nine weeks maybe, yeah. So we're going to we're going to watch one a week, which means that there's eight to watch if you include Rogue One. So enough Star Wars, okay? That common thread ran through all those stories, okay? Not through Rogue One, by the way. Anyway. There are several of those common thread type of things that run through the whole of Scripture, right? Jesus said, you search the Scriptures, and it is they that speak of me. Of course, Christ is all through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. It's a common thread. Grace, redemption. When we went to the ark encounter in Kentucky, they pointed out the prevalency of doors in the Bible, and how doors are a common theme through Scripture. And I'm like, well, never thought about that, but they certainly are. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about a common theme that runs through all of Scripture that directly affects what we're going to look at in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Okay, And it's not just sovereignty. We're, we're titling this series, which again, I don't know how long it'll last. I'm not going to make that prediction. Um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, the, the hands and feet of God's sovereign plan. So sovereignty is surely one of those things that runs through all the Scripture. But today, as we look at the historical context, we're going to see another common theme that runs throughout all of Scripture. So in order to do that, some of you guys, some of you ladies, are surely very familiar with your Old Testament history. Some of you probably are not, Okay. And some of you may be going, oh, great, history. Yeah, you're going to get a history lesson this morning. We're going to set your Old Testament in order, in line, so that we can figure out what we're about to jump into with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So, if we're going to talk about Old Testament history, what happened first? Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God. God happened first, okay? Before anything was, God is, Right? is eternally there. Eternity passed. God was there. And I think it was John the other day asked me, was, where was God before He created heaven? I'm like, yes. God was. God didn't need to create heaven to be somewhere because God is God. And before Genesis 1-1, before in the beginning, God is. Okay? So it's important to know that. Surely, and again as we look at this title here, the sovereignty of God was present before creation. God had a plan. 
that was going to unfold, that was going to happen, that was going to take place, and God is before the beginning. But then, in the beginning, God created. He created the heavens and the earth. And then the six days of creation, which I do firmly hold to, are six literal days. There was evening and there was morning the first day. That, I mean, can you get any plainer than that? Why would you want to create a loophole that said that could have been millions of years? Social commentary over. So God created the heavens and the earth and He did it in six days. And He looked at the end and He rested on the seventh day after He had created everything, including Adam and Eve, the first humans. He created, He formed Adam from the dust of the earth and then He fashioned Eve from a rib that He took from Adam. Yes, I believe that literally happened. It's not a story. It's not a fable. It's not an account of how God did things in a way that we could understand it. That's what God did because that's what the Scripture says. I don't need to make excuses for God. I don't need to try to figure out how God might could have done it a different way when He tells us exactly how He did it. I'll stop. Okay, I'll get off that. That's not the common theme that we're looking for this morning. So after six days of creation, God rested from His work. Was God tired? No, God was not tired. God was setting a precedent for us that the Sabbath was made for man so that we might rest. So God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And here's, part of, here, here's the theme that we're going to chase through the Old Testament and then later even through the New Testament as we end our message today. What you had is God dwelling with His people in a land. Okay? God literally walking with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God, people, land. And those things being together. God dwelt with His people in a literal land. That happened in Eden. And that was God's design. And God said it's very good. So God's design was that He would walk with His creation, His people, humans specifically, in this perfect place, in this perfect garden. But something happened, right? Now you don't need to know your Old Testament history very much to know that Adam and Eve sinned. Right? The tree that He told them not to eat from, they did partake of. And yes, I believe that literally happened. It's not allegory. There was a tree He told them not to eat from, and Eve partook of it, and she gave to her husband who was there with her, and he partook of it. And sin entered the human race. And we spent a lot of time in Romans talking about imputation and how in Adam all sinned. So then what happened? They sinned, they were ashamed, they run out, and they cover themselves with fig leaves. And God comes to walk with them, and they have hidden themselves. God says, what have you done? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of? Then the buck starts getting passed. Adam says, that woman you gave me, gave me the fruit. And the woman says, the serpent told me. And the serpent's like, what? And that's basically what happened. But something terrible happened. God expelled them from the land that He was dwelling with them in. He said, you got to get out of here. And He even set cherubim, which are angels, with flaming swords of fire to keep them out of the land that He had dwelt with them in. He would communicate with them, but He would not dwell with them anymore because sin had entered the human race. And we see it real quick with Cain and Abel, right? Because Cain killed his brother. So man was expelled from the land... And God's presence was withdrawn. God, land, man, no longer together. Sin had separated God and man, and they had been expelled from the land. Well, that didn't stop them from multiplying, right? Started to increase and abound. And with them, sin continued to increase and abound. To the point that we reach a place in biblical history, early in Genesis just a couple pages over from the fall, 
When God looks and it says that He's sorry that He made man, does that mean that God made a mistake and He said, oh, I shouldn't have done that? No, that's not what it means. It means that He is sorry at the amount of sin that is in the earth. And what does He do? He destroys them. He destroys the earth and every human being in it except for Noah, Noah's wife, Noah's three sons and their wives, and a bunch of animals. On a literal ark that floated on a literal flood that covered the literal entire earth. Okay? Again, I don't know if we can be any clearer about where we stand on these things. God destroyed the world with a flood. But He preserved human and animal life in an ark. And God shut them in. God did not dwell with them in the ark because they were separated by sin as well. The ark landed after the flood subsided. Man multiplied again and spread out over the face of the earth. And then we get to the Tower of Babel. If you don't know what the Tower of Babel is, all these people that had started multiplying after Noah's flood got together and said, let's build a tower up to the heavens. And what they were doing was they were trying to exalt themselves to the heavens, which is what man has been doing since sin entered the world. And God looked down and He said, if they can do this, what's in their heart, what will prevent them from doing other things that they shouldn't do? So God came down and He literally confused their languages so that they couldn't speak and He spread them out all over the earth. You go here, you go here, you go here, you go here. You talk this way, you talk this way, you talk this way. That's how genetics kind of got... We got different colored people. We got different sizes, shapes of people because everybody got separated, literally. Okay? Then we come to Genesis 11, which is a turning point in Scripture. And God reaches down and He calls a man. Out of all the people of the earth, He reaches down and He finds a moon worshiper named Abram. And he says, you, I'm going to do something with you. And I'm calling you out of everybody else in the world, and I want you to go where I tell you to go. And Scripture says that Abram did that. He didn't tell him where he was going. He said, You're going to, I want you to go where I tell you to go. So he called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. They got to Haran, stopped there for a little while, and then they went into the land of promise. And God made a promise to Abram while he was in this little stretch of land. Okay? We're going to look at Genesis 15, 5 through 21. Now, let me set context because this says, and he brought him. Well, who's that, right? God brought Abram. And God brought Abram outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then God said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. Now remember, Abram had no children at this point, And he's getting kind of old. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this what? Land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it, the land? God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. 
So what is he saying? I'm, I'm going I'm to give you descendants. He said that. But your descendants are going to live where? Careful. They're going to live two different places. I'm going to give them this land, but they're also going to go down to another place, down to Egypt, and they're going to live there for how long? 400 years. And then once the iniquity of the Amorites is complete, because that's who moves into the land, that's who's there anyway, and then when they come back up, the iniquity of the Amorites is going to be judged, and I'm going to use your descendants to judge these, these Amorites, and then your people will live in this land. Now listen, this land is important. It is a part of the covenant that God made with Abram. And it is a literal land. We talk about the promised land like it's some ethereal thing in heaven, and it surely represents that. But here, God is saying to Abram, your descendants will be in this land. I'm giving you and your descendants this land for perpetuity. Perpetuity. There it is. Perpetually. Okay? Right, not provisionally, right. So he said they'd, he'd have descendants. He also promised a seed, which we knew was Christ. Again, a common thread. And he said that his descendants would be in Egypt for 400 years. But the land would be the Israelites. And we'll talk about how they became Israelites in just a minute. Because Abram did have a son, the son of promise, when he was 100 and Sarai, who became Sarah, was 90, they had who? Isaac, who was a child of promise, not the child of promise. Jesus was the child of promise. So they had Isaac. Isaac married a woman named Rebecca, and they had twins, Jacob and Esau, right? And God said, Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hate. He said that later. And here he says, before they'd done anything right or wrong, remember Romans 9? God chose Jacob to be the one who would be the inheritor of the promises. So Isaac and Rebekah have Jacob. Jacob is a scoundrel. You want to talk about one dirty, conniving, sneaky guy. That was Jacob. And his mother, and his mother who also schemed with them because he was her favorite. Okay? Huh? And Will knows that feeling, right? What it means to be his mom's man. <laughs> um, anywho, we'll move past the sibling rivalry that's here. Anyway, and uh, so Jacob, uh, his mom says, I don't want to marry any of these women because she heard that Esau was going to kill him. So she gets him out of town, sends him to her kinfolk. And he marries two women and has kids by two other women and all this stuff. So they end up having how many sons? Twelve sons, right? Who became the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, where's this Israel thing come into play, you might ask? Glad you asked. On his way back to the promised land where they had settled earlier, bringing all of his family back, this guy named Jacob literally wrestles with God. Okay? Now that's a pay-per-view that I'd like to see, right? That's raw, to say the least. And it's, he's wrestling with God, and they're locked up, and God says, okay, it's, this is over. And Jacob says, I'm not letting you go unless you bless me. And... God says, what's my name? Jacob says, God's name. And then he says, you say my name too. So why you tell me to say your name? And he touches the sinew of his hip. And he says, the blessing that he gives him is, you're no longer Jacob, but you will be called Israel. Which means strives with God. Because he says, you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. So Jacob literally gets renamed Israel. So his sons are the children of... Israel, okay? So they settled down there in that patch of land that Abram was promised by God, which would become the promised land. We'll get there in a minute. These 12 sons, they're not very nice people, okay? I'm just going to tell you right now. Because their little brother, Joseph, who's not the youngest, he's the next to the youngest, he has a dream that they're going to bow down to him and that his mom and dad are going to bow down to him and they get mad and they sell him into slavery, and they sell him into slavery, and where does he end up, might you think? He ends up in Egypt. Okay. Now again, his brother sold him into slavery. Get a hold of that. And they're still up here in the Promised Land. He's down in Egypt. He comes in contact with a man named Potiphar, 
Everything Joseph touches turns to gold. Potiphar puts him over his house. Potiphar's wife says, Joseph tried to rape me. Joseph said, no, I didn't. Potiphar says, you're going to jail. So he goes to jail. And he's in jail and he interprets a couple dreams. And he tells the people who he interpreted the dreams for, he said, when you see Pharaoh again, who's leader of Egypt, don't forget me. Well, they forget him. Okay, His dream interpretation was correct. And one of them gets killed. The other one gets elevated back to cupbearer to Pharaoh. A couple years later, Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, has a dream that troubles him. And he's like, man, I don't know what this dream means. Cupbearer goes, dope! There's a guy in jail who interpreted a dream for me and the baker. You cut the baker's head off. You elevated me. And it was exactly like he told us. You need to talk to Joseph. So Pharaoh calls for Joseph. They clean Joseph up. He comes up. Pharaoh tells him his dream, and Joseph said, dream, dream interpretation belongs to God, and this is what's going to happen. There's seven years of plenty coming, but after that, seven years of famine that are going to be worse than the plenty, so we need to store up some food because that famine's going to be terrible. Pharaoh says, you're the man, Joseph. You're basically second in command to me, and he puts them over all the land, and they start storing up grain in these seven years of plenty. Well, the famine reaches the promised land up where Israel and his sons are living, and they think Joseph's dead by this point, okay? Joseph, uh, Jacob, who is now Israel, says, go down to Egypt and get us food because I hear there's food down there. So, this, that, I'll shorten that story. They go down to get food. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize Joseph. He says, go back and bring your younger brother back or you won't have any food. They, they're like, no, that ain't going to happen. So they take the food. They go up and they run out of food. Israel says, go get us more food. They said, we can't because unless we take our younger brother. He said, no way you're taking your younger brother because if he dies, I'm going to grieve myself to death. They're like, look, there's no other way. This is what we've got to do. So they take the younger brother, and again, this is much condensed. And they come down, and Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers, and he says, guys, it's me, it's Joseph. Go get my dad. Bring everybody down here to Egypt because there's a lot more of this famine to come. It's not going to get any better. So they go up, they get dad. Dad comes down. Israel says, I thought you were dead. I can't believe it. This is wonderful. This is beautiful. They settled them in the land of Goshen. So now you've got God's people not in God's land. And is God dwelling with them? No. He's overseeing everything. He's orchestrating everything. But He is not dwelling with them there in Egypt. And how long do you figure they end up being there? About 400 years, because that's what God said, right? That's a common theme too. So then, the book of Genesis ends, and again, we sang it this morning. Uh, Joseph's brothers are like, oh no, dad's dead. Now Joseph's going to be mad at us. We should tell him that dad told him to take care of us. And they come and they, they plot that out, and Joseph weeps, and he says, guys, what you meant for evil, the Lord meant for good, to preserve many alive to this day. I ain't mad at you. God turned this evil thing that you did into something good for us to preserve many alive. So the book of Genesis ends that way. And they're in Egypt. God's people are in Egypt. And then they multiply. And you know the story, right? Because you've seen Prince of Egypt. And um, Anyway, they multiply. And then Pharaoh looks out in 400 years and says, there's more of them than there is of us. This is scary. So he puts them under subjection as slaves. And they start building pyramids and sphinxes and stuff like that. But the more he persecutes them, the more that they multiply. He tries to kill the firstborn, and then we hear about who? Uh, all, all, not firstborn, he tries to kill the males, of every born male. And we hear about a guy named Moses who gets hidden in a basket. He was sitting in the rushes, and in a basket made a reed. Sorry, little Rich Mullins flashback there. So then we got Moses, and Moses grows up in the court of Pharaoh, and then he has his mishap, and he ends up back over. He runs for his life, and he marries a Midianite. And while he's there, he sees a burning bush. And it's curious because this thing's burning, but it's not being consumed. And he's like, i got to go check this out. So he goes, and God talks to him from the middle of the bush. Now, we, we read that, and we're like, that's, that's wild. No, 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 no. No, he's in the middle of the desert. A bush is on fire. It's not being consumed. He walks up to it, and God speaks out of it. So either he was smoking something really good, or God was doing something really good. And the Bible tells us that God was doing something really good. He says, Moses, go back and bring my people out of Egypt. To where? To the land that I said is theirs. Okay, so here's this land thing again. 
on the way as they... I'll spare you that you can watch the Prince of Egypt or you can read the Bible and figure out what happens between now and then. They do leave Egypt under Moses' command and they wander in the desert for 40 years. 11-day trip is what it should have been, by the way. It took them 40 years because they were disobedient. And God said, until this generation dies out, you're not going anywhere. You're going to wander around here. Well, while they're wandering around, God gives them the law. Now, this is really important in our story with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, okay? In that law, God has provision for the land that they're going to dwell in. Okay, let me read this to you. Leviticus 25, 1 through 7. This is God giving the law to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land All its yield shall be for food. So what's he saying? Every seventh year, no farming. Let the the land rest. Give the land a Sabbath rest. Agricultural engineers are starting to see the genius of this, by the way. That's why they rotate crops. That's why they move cattle to different fields. It's really smart. It's almost like God knew what was going on. Okay. Now, so he tells them, this is important. I want you to do this. How important is it? Let me go to Leviticus 26. I'm going to read 27 through 39. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. Now, this is not just about giving the land a trust, but that's in there. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations. Tuck that away. And I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's land, and the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And you shall perish among the nations... And the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. Now again, this is not just about them not giving the Sabbath rest to the land. It's about them being idolatrous and forsaking the Lord. But God is saying, when you don't do what you're supposed to do with this land, in this land... I'm going to send you into other lands and the land will have its Sabbaths long enough to make up for the time that you didn't give it its Sabbaths and you're going to be not in this land that I'm promising to give you. And God uses some pretty harsh terms there, doesn't He? Keep that in mind. That's very important. Now, while they wander in the desert, these uh, former Egyptian soon-to-be promised landians, They build a tabernacle at God's request, at God's direction, not request, 
command, at God's command. And it's a tent where God wanted to meet with the people. It's a tent where God wanted to be with His people in whatever land they were in. So they wander through the desert for 40 years and they set up and they tear down this temple. They set up and they... Tabernacle. They set up and they tear down this tabernacle. Set it up, tear it down. Set it up, tear it down. Everywhere, every time they move, they've got to tear it down. Every time they camp, they've got to set it up. Why? Because God wants to meet with His people through the priests, through Moses, and they make the Ark of the Covenant. Get Not Indiana Jones, just, just don't go there, okay? And the Ark is set in the midst and God... His dwelling place, His mercy seat is there on top of the ark. And they do this all through their time wandering from Egypt to the promised land. So God kind of dwells with them in the land that they're in. So you got God's people. You don't have God's land that He promised them, but you got the presence of God kind of. Okay, He's not dealing with them directly. He's dealing with them through priests and through Moses. Now... After 40 years, they arrive at the promised land. Okay, Moses dies and a guy named Joshua takes over who was actually Moses' disciple, literally. And they move in to the promised land and it is a bloody mess. You read the book of... Actually, I don't know if he'll ever listen to this, but my, my nephew called me this week and he started reading through the Old Testament. And he got to Joshua where they wipe out Jericho, and then they go to Ai where they kind of stumble. But then at the end, when they do conquer Ai, it says that they put the king of Ai on a spit, basically. A, a kebab, kind of. A king kebab. And my, my nephew called me early Monday morning. He's like, I need to ask you a question about this thing, about them putting the king on a kebab. I got, I'm using his word now. He's like, doesn't that seem kind of mean? And, you know, yeah, yeah, it's kind of mean. But God told them to wipe these people out because the land has to be purged. The land that they're moving into, which is the land that God had promised Abram, has to be purged of the iniquities of the Amorite. So God is literally pouring out His wrath upon the sins of the Amorite as the people of God march into the land. And He tells them, have no mercy. Kill them all. God said that, not Metallica. Okay? Somebody's like, who's Metallica? I love you folks. I really do. Okay, so they go in and they are exercising God's wrath against the sins of the Amorites to purge this land, to get rid of their idols, to get rid of their practices, and they are supposed to take this land clean. Well, they don't do so well at doing that. But they do move into the land and they become the nation of Israel in the promised land. But God's still dwelling in a tabernacle, in a tent. And they are a theocracy. God rules over them. And then we get to the book of Judges, and things just get completely out of whack here. I mean, just read the book of Judges, I dare you. And walk away from that and go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Because it don't. Because it says there in the book of Judges that in those days there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. That's what the book of Judges is about. So then they call out for a king in the time of Samuel. They said, we want to be, we want a king like all the other nations. So God says, give him a king. And they anoint Saul. And now they're a monarchy. Saul stumbles, Saul falls, and then comes David, who is the quintessential king of Israel. And his was just an incredible reign. And during his reign, he sets up Jerusalem as the capital of the nation of Israel. And he has a plan. He has a dream. He has a goal in mind. He wants to build a temple. Because he says, here I dwell in a, in a, in a paneled house in cedar and beauty and the ark of God is sitting in a tent over here. Something's not right. God says, I like what you're thinking, but you're not going to do it because you're a man of much bloodshed. So he says, your son will build a temple for me. So David gets everything ready and his son Solomon becomes king. He says, son, you're ready. Build this temple. God said you were going to do it. So Solomon builds this temple. And it is the centerpiece of religious life for the people of Israel. It's in Jerusalem. It is magnificent. And what happened? Listen to this. 
1 Kings 8. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ephanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the Ark. And they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels, keep that in mind, that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside and they are there to this day, which is not true now. It was then. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that He would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Now you've got the people of God in the land that God had promised them, and God is dwelling in the temple. Hallelujah! Praise God! All is right in the world. But it's not. What you have here... If you can see that, that blue is the United Kingdom of Israel, not the UK, but this is Israel as one nation. Okay, Something happens though after Solomon. The kingdom divides into two. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah still has Jerusalem as its capital. Israel has Samaria as its capital. Okay, because they couldn't get along after Solomon, Rehoboam and Jeroboam split the kingdom. Jeroboam takes the north, Rehoboam takes the south. Jeroboam sets the northern kingdom on a mess of a path. And it's idolatry. They set up idols in Samaria so that people don't go to Jerusalem to worship anymore. So now the people of God are in a divided land where part of them are worshiping where the presence of God is and part of them are worshiping up on hills looking at golden calves and such and doing things that they shouldn't do. Okay, So, do you think God's going to stand for that? No, He's not going to stand for that. So what happens from here is a series, after a few hundred years, a series of foreign onslaughts. I just like to say foreign onslaughts. That's a lot of fun. Okay, And the first one happens when the, the, the kingdom of Assyria marches into the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. And they take the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is destroyed, but the southern kingdom is spared. Assyria thinks they're going to go into the southern kingdom, but God shows up and says, no, you're not. And 185,000 people die in one night because the angel of the Lord struck them down. And Assyria... Sennacherib, thank you. Sennacherib marches back to Assyria with his tail between his legs and says, oh, well, at least we got the north. Okay, So that goes on for quite a while. So the southern kingdom is basically there, up and down, good and bad, idols, God, idols, God, idols, God. And then the kingdom of Babylon overtakes the kingdom of Assyria. And starting at about 606, they start kind of making entrances into the southern kingdom. And they start deporting people, which is exactly what happened to the northern kingdom. Those people got deported. They got sent out of the land that God had promised them, and they're living all over, wherever the Assyrians put them. Well, now the Babylonians come in, now the dominant kingdom in the world, and in 586 B.C., they take Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah, and they march the inhabitants of the southern kingdom of Judah from the promised land way over into what is present-day Iraq. About a thousand miles marching across hot sand. These captives leave the land of God. The temple is torn down, literally ransacked. All the plates, cups, bowls, all the worthy stuff that was made out of gold taken to Babylon. 
and there they sit. No land, God not dwelling with them in a foreign land. We looked at the psalm and they said, how could we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? So they're exiles. Now imagine, I don't know, Canada couldn't take us, but I don't know, Venezuela or something. Sorry. Oh, she's not in here, so I look and she's not here. Um, I don't know, I don't know. Let's say Venezuela came and conquered America and they marched us to Venezuela. And we're living in Venezuela. We're Americans, but we're living in Venezuela. And we're remembering everything good. And what's going on? These people are in Babylon and they remember the temple and they remember God's presence. And they're so sorry and they're so heartsick and they want to go home. But they settle in the land. Now, while they're there, well, God made this prophecy in Jeremiah. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. There's, again, it's like God knows. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. But that's not all he says. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders in the ex, of the exile. So these, this is a letter that Jeremiah sends before the final fall of Jerusalem to the people who had already been exiled. Okay, And to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, the letter, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Who did it? Whom I have sent, God says, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. The prophets were saying to them there in exile, we'll be back to Jerusalem soon. We'll we'll go back to the promised land because that's our land. God will take us back there. God's saying don't believe them. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And 150 years before this happened, God prophesied through Isaiah, and we're almost done. God calls Himself the one who says of Cyrus, keep that name in your head, He is my shepherd, and He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now remember, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and God says 150 years before it happens that He's going to raise up a man named Cyrus. And Cyrus is going to proclaim that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and that the temple will be rebuilt. 45.1 Isaiah 40. Thus says the Lord to His anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before Him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before Him that gates may not be closed. Now, critics of the Bible say Isaiah couldn't have written this because it was 150 years before Cyrus. Duh. You know. <laughs> We know this, okay? We know a God who exists outside of time and He knows the plan. So God says 150 years before it happens, I'm going to raise up a man named Cyrus and he's going to tell the exiles in Babylon to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And that's exactly what happens because the kingdom of Persia overcomes the kingdom of Babylon and when the Persians take over, this guy named Cyrus becomes leader and he says, you guys... From Jerusalem, y'all can go back. And I want you to go back and I want you to rebuild Jerusalem and I want you to rebuild your temple. 
It's like God knew what was going on. So they got moved from exiles in a land where God's not dwelling with them, not in the land that God promised them. A guy that God raises up says, go back to the land that I promised you. Build the temple back. Well, not all of them go. They've been there 70 years, y'all. Some of them have never seen Jerusalem. But some of them do go. Now, my question is, would you go? If you were born in Venezuela? Yeah. And they were living life. And God says, go back and build my temple back. Because I want to dwell with you in the land that I promised that I'd dwell with you in. In the temple there. After Persia, by the way, Greece comes and they overtake Persia. And after Greece, the Romans come and they overtake Greece. So that's the five major onslaughts, four onslaughts. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. And all the while, what you got is these people who are starting to come back to the land in the Persian Empire. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Ezra. Okay? All that to say, here we are at Ezra now. So as we start the book of Ezra and then we go into Nehemiah, we find ourselves in what is a period of exile for the people of God. They had been taken captive by the Babylonians. The Persians defeated the Babylonians. And the Persians inherited the Jews in Babylon. And Cyrus says to the exiles from Judah living in the land of Babylon, go back. Now, there was a prophet who was in exile with the exiles named Ezekiel. He has a vision. We're almost done. Stay with me. He is in Babylon and he has this vision. The word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel was a nut, by the way. Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Remember the land possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. So was God dwelling with them? They were literally dwelling in God as a sanctuary. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Ezekiel saying this while he's in exile with the exiles in Babylon. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations, and I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings, this is a vision that Ezekiel's having, with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me. And I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. But that's not the only vision Ezekiel had. Ten more verses. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kibar Canal, and I fell on my face. And as the glory of the Lord entered the temple, now the glory had departed, in the first vision, but now the glory comes back to the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by, settling their, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only a wall between me and them. Boy, that's 
huge, but we won't go there. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now, let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. So God gives Ezekiel a vision, not only of the glory departing, but of the glory coming back and dwelling in a temple in the land that they had been exiled from. And he said, do this so that they may measure the plan. So that they might have a plan to rebuild this temple and he gives them exact measurements of what it's supposed to look like. So it's a motivation. God says, you go do what I'm asking you to do and I will dwell with you in the land like I told Abram I would do way back when. And like it had happened at one time before. So this is where we find the people of God at the beginning of Ezra. Given the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem. I don't know if you'll be able to see this or not. Yeah, it's not too bad. So there's our history line. Okay, You see the 70-year exile over here. And then in 538 B.C., this is where we'll pick up in Ezra, a guy named Zerubbabel, say that, Zerubbabel, leads the first wave of Jews back to Jerusalem. And that's going to be Ezra chapters 1 through 6. This guy we know as Ezra doesn't enter the book of Ezra until chapter 7. Okay? Because something had happened. And then you see something happens between 538 and 457 when Ezra gets introduced here. You see the book of Esther there and you see Nehemiah later. So that's where we're at as we enter the book of Ezra. Now what's the common thread that we're looking at this morning? God dwelling in the land with His people. And what we're going to do as we look at the timeline, as we go move into these books, we'll see how God uses people to bring about His plan to dwell with His people in the land of promise. And it's quite a story. But is their story the end? No, not at all. And does God end up dwelling with His people after all? Well, the Old Testament ends at about 400 B.C. or so. Okay, we're going to fast forward past Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And this is the end of the Old Testament. Malachi says this, Malachi 3, 1-5, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now again, this is post-Ezra. This is the end of the Old Testament. The temple has been rebuilt. I don't mean to spoil anything, but the temple does get rebuilt, okay? We'll get to that. And here, God says at the end of the Old Testament, before He is quiet for 400 years, He says, I will send my messenger, He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming, and who can stand when He appears? For He's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment." I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And that's right before the book of Malachi ends and God shuts up, literally, for 400 years. But then something happens, right? We read it this morning in Matthew. A woman named Mary has a baby. And that baby is God in the flesh. And he's presented where? In the temple. Not the temple that these Jews had rebuilt, but Herod had rebuilt a temple. And it was magnificent. And it was in Jerusalem. And they worshipped there. They had been reestablished there. And they weren't exactly on the level, but this temple had been rebuilt. And womb, this little baby shows up. And God suddenly appears in His temple. And you've got a people in the land And God is dwelling with them in the flesh. But they kill Him. They kill God in the flesh. And they bury Him. And they said, well, we're done with that. 
they're not done with that. He's resurrected. Shows himself alive to over 500 people and then he ascends into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. And in 70 AD, their temple that they held so dear got destroyed, wiped out. And temple worship was never again to be reinstated in the nation of Israel and the Jews are scattered everywhere. So does God dwell with man today? Or has His promise failed? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Does God dwell with His people today? Yes, He does. Yes, He does. Much better than a temple made with hands. This temple that God is constructing out of believers. The Holy Spirit lives within us individually and the Holy Spirit lives within us corporately and the Holy Spirit is God. And He dwells with His people. But are we in the land yet? No, we're not. But we will be. We'll finish with this. Revelation 21. We saw God dwelling with man in Genesis. Revelation 21, the end of the book. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice. Get ready for a loud voice, because it's coming. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne, this same God who had dwelt among them, whom they had killed, and who was resurrected, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To one who con- the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God. And he shall be my son. Let me tell y'all folks something really good. The end of all things is God dwelling with his people in his land. And it's as sure as the nose on your face. That one. And he said it way back in Genesis. Uh, That was his desire. And as we enter into Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther... These folks put up a whale of a fight to get this temple rebuilt, to get the walls of the city rebuilt. And their work is a call to us today to be about the work of God because God has promised that if His people will work, if His people will seek them with all of their hearts, He will dwell with them and be their God. And we know that the ultimate fulfillment of that comes here in Revelation 21. But we can know the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living is what the Scripture says and get a foretaste of this knowing that this is coming. And you shall call His name Emmanuel. God with us. Man, that's good. So as we move into Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, we're going to see how God uses people to bring about His promises in very tangible ways. And I'm pretty excited about it. Let's pray. God, it is an understatement to say that you know what you're doing. But sometimes we question, sometimes we wonder, sometimes we look around and see a world swirling out of control and we feel like exiles in a land that is not our own. And your word tells us that that is exactly what we are. We are aliens and strangers. We are pilgrims on a pilgrimage to this land that you have promised us that you would dwell with us in forever. Oh God, make us homesick people. But make us a people who do sing 
the songs of the Lord in the land of our sojourn, in the land of our oppressors. And may we look forward with anticipation that day when that city comes down to earth and your dwelling place is with man. We are a redeemed people, a people with a hope that cannot be extinguished because you are who you say you are. You are sovereign over us. We are who you say we are. And you will do what you said you would do. You have placed a new heart within us, a heart of flesh, so that we would seek you with all of our hearts. Help us to do that, God. And as we go into these books, give us insight and direction so that we may be faithful according to the empowerment of your Holy Spirit through your Holy Word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for a benediction? Thank you for your patience this morning. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stay neat with us if you can.